You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 349 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Based in Portland, Oregon, John Check is a senior Ruby developer working at Planet Argon, a software agency that helps companies with existing Ruby on Rails applications make them better and more maintainable. John works on a wide range of client projects as a tech lead and provides mentorship to interns and junior developers having started out there as a junior himself. Welcome to the show, John. Great to be here. It's fabulous to have you. Well, John, what is your developer origin story? I have a pretty uh, standard one from what I can tell. Uh, I wanted to do something in college and I ended up not doing that. Um, That thing that I was going to do was gonna be an air traffic controller. I had finished all of my uh, required schooling, which was very little at the time. And I was kind of waiting for my name to get picked out of a hat. And I got tired of waiting for that name to be plucked out of that hat. So I was looking for other things to do. And in Portland at the time, this was in 2014, um, there was an upstart of a code school there and they advertised it as something that you could kind of bootstrap yourself into yeah, becoming a, a developer in the, uh, in the local market. And that sounded really appealing to me. So I signed up for what was like their second track ever. And it was a, it was a good experience. Um, they, it was about three months long and they covered, you know, Ruby, a little bit of JavaScript, some rails. At the time, we were using Ruby 4, which or Rails 4, which had just come out. And uh, no JavaScript frameworks. It was just all vanilla JavaScript at the time. Um, and yeah, one of the, one, the only, my only complaint, complaint about that code school at the time was the internship program was really, like, it was just really lacking. It didn't have a lot of focus. But yeah, that's how I, and then um, I finished that, I finished at uh, the code school and they actually had a, uh, Oh, what is that called? A um, Like a demo day? Yeah, like a demo day, yeah. Where you would kind of talk to local companies, and Planet Argon happened to be one of them. And I actually applied for a, a mid-level developer job because they weren't hiring junior developers, which is a pretty common thing that you see in a lot of agencies. And it took, a, it took, a long, took them a while to get back to me. I think I put my app in. I interviewed within two weeks and then like one, one, you know, one and a half months went by. And then I got like an email that says, hey, um, we want to give you an application or an offer to work here. And I've been here ever since. Um, that's incredible. I love the patience that you had. And it also proves to some of my most favorite jobs that I've gotten, I haven't gotten them right away. And in some cases, I've actually thought it's a lost cause. And so you kind of run that weird situation where you're like, do I follow up? Do I want to seem eager? Um, yeah, it's it's always super interesting to see how you juggle that. And of course, as a junior developer, you've definitely said that. And I saw a really smart tweet the other day that it's really easy for developers like myself and yourself to offer advice to junior developers that are coming up. But the environment that they're coming into is very different than what we came into. I feel like I had a lot more opportunity as a junior developer. And even then, I thought it was hard. So that, that is a great story to share. Yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, the market has changed, the, like the availability of junior developer positions, not just in Portland, but kind of everywhere in the in the U.S. has shifted a lot. The industry has picked up a lot. I'm not saying that there isn't a 
need for more junior developers. That's definitely not the case. It's just, it's just much, it's just, you have to put in a lot more work. It seems like nowadays to get that foot in the door. I totally agree. And I'm actually kind of crossing my fingers. You know, a lot of bad stuff happened in 2020, but if we can get one benefit and that means that there are more remote junior developer positions available, I would be super thrilled. Yes, me as well. I think that's uh, going to be our, our new our, our new reality. And I think like the industry has, I, I know I know we have for sure at our at Planet Argon um, kind of resisted the remote intern or junior developer. And now we're kind of forced to embrace that. And I think it's going to really change the game for a lot of for a lot of reasons. I absolutely agree. So let's talk about you onboarding at Planet Argon. Were you immediately introduced to Ruby and Ruby on Rails, or did you get somewhat of a foundation in there when you were going through the boot camp? Like, basically, how did you ramp up your skills? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the people the people around me were really supportive at Planet Argon when I started working there as a junior. Um, they were they were really patient. Uh, a lot of tapping on the shoulder, so to speak, sitting next to my desk mate. Um, and also just not throwing too much work at you. I, I, I feel like that, uh, we, the, especially in agency life, it's, it can be a little difficult to find a task that's really junior specific and you might end up assigning them something that's a little bit more complicated than maybe what they're prepared for, but being overwhelmed is kind of a part of being a junior developer, at least it was for me, you know, be, like feeling like I don't really know where to go with this and then seeking that guidance to figure out where, where, like, where should I start from people that are more senior than I am. But in terms of like onboarding, when it comes to languages, um, they were, I, I did my bootcamp in Rails. Um, they were a Rails shop. Um, it was, it was, it was a pretty seamless transition. I feel like I didn't have, I more, I spent more time ramping up on skills like how to manage a ticket in Jira and how to track my time at harvest. How do I make a pull request? You know, it's not something that you do in code school most of the time. So a lot of those, I, I, I don't, I dislike the term soft skill because they are very strong skills, but non like tech, like just non coding skills. This episode of the five by five Ruby on Rails podcast is supported by command line heroes. Command Line Heroes is a podcast that tells the epic true tales of developers, programmers, hackers, geeks, and open source rebels who are revolutionizing the technology landscape. Season six of Command Line Heroes is available now. This season tells the story of black technologists who innovated and invented despite systemic racism, unfair hiring practices, and unequal education opportunities. I just listened to the episode about Gladys West, whose mathematical models and data analysis paved the way for GPS. I thought they did a wonderful job covering her origin story and the difference she has made. Command Line Heroes is hosted by developer and podcaster Saranya Barak, who happens to be my favorite voice in podcasting. Search for Command Line Heroes anywhere you listen to podcasts. I will include a link in the show notes. My thanks to Command Line Heroes for their support. I couldn't agree with you more. When I was a bootcamp mentor, one of the top skills that I taught my students was how to open a pull request and really explain what you were doing. It seemed really funny because they're working on these greenfield projects and you know, they're the only contributor, but I told them, you know, I'm reviewing your homework. And so I want to see a pull request that goes with it. I want you to relate it to the specific assignment. And I, I truly believe that those are skills that definitely translate into the working world, but it's something that often gets skipped over in the boot camp land. So John, can you tell me about Planet Argon's internship program? Yeah, I sure can. 
So we've been we've had interns for about I believe four years now since I started here. So when we, when I first came on, we we took about two years before we were comfortable taking them on board. They actually mostly come from my my former cold school uh, of Epicotus. Um, they have cohorts going through their program uh, a lot, and it's like one of the last things that they do is that they get a week, a month long internship program at a local uh, development shop. Um, so what, what that process, usually we usually get assigned two interns, uh, from the code school. The internship program is really inspired on providing real, real life working, uh, experience. We don't, we don't want people to be working on greenfield applications that we've, that we, that we ourselves have shelved because we don't have the time, the resources to finish them or or just like something that's never going to see the light of day. What we want our interns to experience is what it's like for your first month as a junior developer at wherever you go. Um, so the idea is, is that you, they would come in, they would be onboarded, they would be helped to set up their environment in their lap, in their, on, their, on their work machine so that they're ready to work on the, the various applications that we've got from our clients. And then we have pre-selected tasks that maybe the client hasn't prioritized or it's something that the developers at PA want to uh, be worked on, but don't have the time to do that. And they just, they just get assigned a ticket in Jira and they just go at it. So um, along that way, there's a lot of pairing sessions uh, with the, with the intern. There's also some shadowing sessions. So uh, like two to three hour shadowing sessions where the intern is just kind of um, well, it used to be, uh, you know, behind your shoulder at your desk, but now it's through through tools like Zoom, uh, screen share, or any kind of screen sharing uh, technology when it comes to that. And uh, the the more the mentor in that role would be kind of talking about what they're doing, why they're making those decisions, and the intern it would be, you know, uh, bringing up questions like, I don't even know what that is, like what you're talking about. So. It's really, it's really to give them a well-rounded experience coming out of the internship. Um, we also, I mean, it's not just all month-long internships either. We do have sometimes, sometimes have interns that stay for up to three months. Uh, those are a little bit more few and far between just because they just require more support and really it depends on the workload that we have at, the, at that time. That makes a lot of sense, and it's really wonderful the planet or Argon supports a program like this. So I have a little bit of a hot take here, and it's that I don't I don't really care for pair programming in person, and I actually really prefer it remotely. Uh, I don't like being crowded around the same screen. I'm curious if you feel the same way. I, I think that it a lot of times it lends to just uh, one person doing all the writing, and it and the other person just kind of sitting there, and especially if that person is a little bit more um, yeah, assertive, it can be difficult for the other person to get anything across. And it's almost like a shadowing session, which those are valuable. Don't get me wrong. But I think that true pairing is when both people can drive and you actually have hard stops in, in terms of, okay, I'm no longer driving now and I'm, I'm not typing. I'm going to pass it off to you. And I think that is much easier to do remotely because you don't have to get up out of your desk and switch spots, like right. That that's one of the one of the main things, um, and it also just feels like um, it's just a little bit easier to do over Zoom. There's just the technologies have gotten a lot better. 
I know that we we've used VS Code to uh, to basically share sessions, and people can maneuver in the same code base and uh, on on different machines. So it's it's been it's really been interesting to see how that's grown in the past year, couple of years. I agree with you. I know that there are definitely companies out there that do mob programming. And I think the definition of that is when you have more than two people trying to pair at once, which always just seems crazy to me. But there are a lot of situations now that I'm working remotely full time where I might be pairing with the junior developer at work and, you know, another developer might need to be consulted. Maybe it's for the UI or for a DevOps situation. And so it's really convenient that you can throw out and have a, a third person join. And they might not necessarily be driving, but just be able to have that person as an expert is really nice. I think the tricky part, though, is in an office, you can really see when somebody's like in a, you know, in that hole, you know, that code hole where they're really focused, they've got their music on, and you know not to approach them. The tricky part with working with people remotely is you're never quite sure when somebody's available. And so really trying to make it clear when I'm coding, or when I'm in a meeting is definitely a trick that I've had to pick up with remote work. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think a lot of us have probably leveled up a lot when it comes to managing your schedule in a calendar application during this uh, pandemic. I couldn't agree more. Well, can, if listeners are interested in finding out more about the internship program, uh, where would they go to find out? Yeah, they could just go to the uh, planetargon.com. Um, usually we post a job posting or, or a blog post when we have an internship opening. So keep your eyes peeled for those. How many applications on average do you receive whenever you open up a job opening? You know, I don't actually know that. That would be something that my, my engineering manager would know. I know that we interviewed last time eight participants. So I would imagine that there was a good fair amount more than eight. Very cool. Well, let's dive into another aspect at Planet Argon. And as someone who's been a go-to person for big client projects, do you have a specific routine you'd like to do whenever you take on a new project? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that when it comes to just uh, onboarding yourself to a new code base, you're going to want to spend a good amount of time just trying to acclimate yourself with the application, you know, looking at common files, seeing what kind of uh, libraries are in, or gems are installed, uh, what kind of versions are you dealing with? Are there uh, using uh, certain tools to scan, figure out which files are the largest? Those are usually your your go-to to figure out if uh, where all the uh, functionality is in the application. Um, looking for patterns, if they've got like a service object pattern in, in place. Um, and then also test coverage is really important. Uh, for, uh, for better or worse, we inherit a lot of applications that have sub-optimal test coverage. And the ones that usually have test coverage, it's a lot easier to discern what the application is doing and what it's doing right. Uh, so tests are a big part of that. But, um, you know, just trying to get, and then like the next step would be trying to get it running locally on your machine. Does it have a good readme? Documenting that process and updating the readme accordingly so your fellow developers could not have to go through the, the, the struggle of trying to figure out all of the little tricks that, that you need to do to get it running locally. But yeah, I mean, that's usually pretty much it. Um, any kind of documentation that came with the application from the previous developer, you know, you'd want to go over that as well. 
So I always feel that every Rails developer, there's like that one file that you, as soon as you get your hands on a legacy application, there might be that one file or folder. It's like the first thing that you go to and you open up because you just want to see everything. Is there a particular place that you like to look as soon as you get your hands on a client project? Um, one folder would definitely be the models directory uh, that you can learn a lot, learn a lot from that. Also looking at the schema or, or if it's got a structure.sql file, um, that can give you an idea of what's going on. It's funny that you say that because I would definitely go for controllers before the models. And I feel that like the Rails community is divided in half on that. So that's always amusing. <laughs> I actually love to open up the controllers to see whether or not they follow like that DHH, you know, format where you're only using those RESTful routes. I like to look at that. And then I also really like to check to see if the gem file is in alphabetical order. Of course, that <laughs> lends no help for the application running or booting for the first time. But I kind of like to look at that because it tends to be a good indicator that they're using a linter or something like Code Climate in order to keep that gem file neat. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, uh, a lot of times, well, again, a lot of times with applications we're inheriting, things like RuboCop just aren't installed. Uh, so running, but those are the stuff, if that is present, that would be really nice, especially if it's passing the lint, the linter, or if <laughs> they're not overriding all of the rules in place to, that are letting them uh, continue with those bad practices that the community doesn't uh, has disagreed on or agreed that are bad practices. This episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is application performance monitoring designed to help Rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With the developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, Scout helps you quickly pinpoint and resolve performance concerns like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat so you can spend less time debugging and more time building a great product. And with Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails, you can rest easier knowing that Scout's on watch to help you resolve performance issues before your customers ever see them. Give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial and experience firsthand why Rails developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash Ruby on Rails. Thank you to Scout APM for supporting the show. It is always really funny when you inherit a project and it just has a massive exceptions file. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's the definition of sweeping something under the rug, I would think. Yeah, you don't see this too much in, the, at least when the, at least I don't see it a lot, um, but I know this is common in a lot of other languages where there'll be to-do comments littered throughout the code base. And we do usually check for those, but in, the, in my experience, that you don't see that a lot in Rails applications. I agree. I have never been someone who's really enthusiastic about to-dos. I've worked with linters where you can't even commit if you have a to-do in your code base. So it's just never been a habit that I've instilled. I've always believed that if a ticket in your ticketing system doesn't exist for that to-do, then it's kind of fake anyway. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of... It's kind of like just developer uh, wishful thinking. A lot of times it's like, I really don't like this, how this is written, but I don't have the time to refactor it. And it just kind of ends up just being an, a snapshot of that developer's uh, emotion about the code that they're working on that particular day. Agreed. 
Well, let's walk through a hypothetical client project where you're inheriting, let's say, a Ruby on Rails code base. Let's say it's in Rails 3. And so your goal is to get it up to Rails 6, and it maybe has, let's say, 20% test coverage. Can you maybe walk us through like some of the first steps you would take in order to get that uh, application upgraded? Yeah, uh, so the first thing I would probably do is try to get it running on Rails 3. Make sure, you know, I understand that. That's really important. And then also making sure that the 20% of the tests pass uh, because having any kind of test coverage during this process is better than none. The last thing you want to do is have a bunch of broken tests that you start with. You have no idea if your upgrade broke them or not. Uh, after that, I would just incrementally bump versions. I, I've had varying success trying to go from uh, two major versions of, up, up, up where, where you're starting. It just doesn't ever work. And I think, uh, so, you know, bumping up to Rails 4.0, um, then I would start looking at things that get added that we take for granted in like a modern Rails applications, like strong parameters, or um, making sure that we don't have any um, other, other issues that are now deprecated uh, moving forward. So once the app is running on Rails, uh, the next Rails version, um, I would go start solving or start fixing deprecations that have popped up. And then I would just kind of repeat that process as you go until you get to whatever desired Rails version you go, you, you're, you're shooting for. Uh, a note on test coverage, I think that especially when you're inheriting an application, trying to uh, write a bunch of tests for it, it can be a little bit, little bit of a, a trap because you end up spending a lot of time trying to grapple with what the application is doing rather than uh, you end up spending a lot of time just writing tests and you don't know if those are valuable or not. And I'm a big advocator for writing tests, but a lot of times when you're doing an upgrade in the real world, you don't have 20, you don't have hundred percent test coverage and your problem, your time is probably better spent just trying to move different to different versions and doing a little bit more of a, of a manual UAT process than relying on automated testing. Yeah, that's such a good insight because the last job that I worked uh, at the trust, when I inherited the application, it was super broken. It was in the middle of an upgrade. And one of the first things I did was try to write some tests because all the tests were broken at the time. And so because I was onboarding as an employee, I knew I was going to be with that code base for many years. It made sense for me to invest the time into writing tests because I literally didn't understand the product or the site or what the end goal was supposed to look like, but you're in a consulting gig. And so your goal here is to get that upgrade through with as minimal pain as possible. And it's not your job to, while you do want to deliver some business value, of course, you want to have some understanding of the business as you're getting that upgrade through, you know, you don't need to walk away and be an expert in that business. So I agree with you. I think you're taking uh, a very sound approach to uh, adding those tests during an upgrade. Yeah, it's like it's a give and take for sure. I mean, if we were inheriting an application with from a client that we knew we were going to be maintaining for a while, and they they normally they would never ever be like, "Hey, we want you to upgrade." The first thing we want you to do is upgrade our application. <laughs> They're like, "We want this feature that our other vendor did not do, wasn't able to do, or they didn't have time to do, right?" Because that's usually where we get our applications from. Um, but one of the first things we do in that sense is, yeah, you're right, like. Put a ticket in Jira and be and just call it. You know, we need to backfill some tests, and that's usually something that a developer would hop on pretty early in the uh, onboarding process. 
That is such an interesting point that you just raised there in the fact that Planet Argon gets a lot of applications from other vendors where they just kind of were at their limit in terms of feature requests or just maybe domain knowledge. And so it sounds like you come in and you know, you, you have this expertise that you're able to add to these applications. Can you think of, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot, can you think of a situation where, you know, the last vendor said, you know, this this feature might not be possible or it's going to be very expensive to do, and then, you know, you were, you were the next person into that code? I can't think of anything where that has happened explicitly. We do inherit a lot of applications from teams that are either being scaled down or the shop is closing. Or in, in reality, it's usually a lot of times it's a solo developer that's just been a contractor working on that application for a very long time. Uh, but yeah, you know, the client uh, is usually wanting to push something out the door and we will, we will try to get as much help from the, the previous uh, development team or person um, as we can. But, you know, at the same time, we're pretty, we're pretty good experts in our, uh, in our Ruby domain. And we're pretty comfortable taking on a lot of those challenges from a client. And we're also very open to be like, look, we don't know a lot about your application right now. Maybe we should step back and not put your business at risk trying to push something out that we're not confident in. That makes a lot of sense. Well, um, as I ask all of my guests, John, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Rails communities? I, I love writing Ruby. It's such a joy to write in. Um, we, as an, we as an agency uh, have had really good success with it as a language and a framework. And I really, uh, I don't think it's all doom and gloom as you, you would say. I remember when I, was, when I was a little bit newer in this career, you know, you're always thinking about well, what happens if my language becomes outdated and then I can't get a job in this. I'm like, you don't learn Ruby and Rails, you learn how to become an, a, a software engineer, right? So it's just a tool to use. Um, it's one of my favorite tools, so I'm not gonna put it down anytime soon. Um, and I don't, from what I've seen, it doesn't look like the community is either. So I think the outlook is pretty, br pretty bright and I think it's gonna be here for, for many, many more years. I love it. So John, how can listeners follow you? I'm, I'm not actually on a lot of, I, uh, a lot of uh, social media. You can email me at my email, which is john at planetargon.com. If you want to reach out to the uh, PA team here at Planet Argon, you can either you can visit our website, uh, planetargon.com, or you can email us at hello at planetargon.com. Fantastic. Well, John, a personal thank you for me. Junior developers are such an important part of our community. And so just knowing that there's people out there who are, you know, pushing these internship programs and bringing these developers in, it's so exciting. So it was great talking to you. Yeah, great chatting with you too.